Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Levader. This is Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Oh, jeez. Not another greenie show. Well, Ellen, you know that I don't fit that mould. <laughs> First part of the show, we're already, what, 10 seconds in? Thank you. sustainability in a way that'll make you want to stay tuned in. But for us to know where to start, we want to know what sustainability means to you. Basically, um, things that aren't going to deplete our resources and that are going to be good for the environment in the future. The ability to pretty much just last in life, really, and make the earth last and stuff like that. I'm not sure that I do understand, but I suppose it's... uh keeping a decent standard of living with the resources available, something like that. Sort of keeping the environment as one and using it rather than destroying it. I think it has to be looked at from a personal through to a global, you know, level. Like I think a lot of the focus on sustainability is directed towards individual transformation of your domestic kind of habits, like things like recycling, you know, placing the emphasis on the individual. And I think that it kind of ends up exculpating corporations from, you know, having to do the kind of heavy lifting that in fact we need in order to have any kind of a, a future. I'm quite impressed. It seems that everyone has a pretty decent grip on what the word sustainability means. Especially that woman at the end. She was, like, totally all over it. I think she should be doing this show, honestly. But let's look at getting a concrete definition of what sustainability is. So let's bring in the experts. So hi, I'm Melissa Edwards. I'm a senior lecturer in the UTS Business School and my research and teaching areas specialises in sustainability. To me, sustainability is about ensuring that the impacts that we have today are not detrimental to future generations and that wherever possible, the actions that we take have a restorative effect on the environment and also the well-being of those people who we're interacting closely with. So basically, sustainability means let's look at fixing planet Earth so we don't have to live on Mars. And we all know how that turned out for Matt Damon. But he got home in the end, didn't he? Only just. Okay, okay, that's off track. Let's talk about how you live sustainably, Jake. Well, I probably don't really do that much. I do try to recycle, separate rubbish. Um, I do buy some secondhand clothes from op shops and that sort of stuff, but really not too much beyond that. But I am really interested in kind of getting on track and finding out more about it. What about you? Yeah, I I guess I do my bit. We, We compost a bit at home. I have short showers, so much so that when I go to my friends' houses, they're like, well, that was a quick shower. But I, I just can't fathom what else you do in a shower except wash your hair on your body. Like, like jump in, jump out. Yeah, that's what I do. I'm also programmed now to turn off lights in a room when people aren't in there. I even did it earlier here at the station, the meeting room, the big board meeting room, and no one was sitting inside. Uh, so that was my time to shine and I just flicked off the light. Or, or darken, time to darken. Pun number two. It's not really a pun. <laughs> Joke number two. <laughs> um, so we went back to the streets and asked you how you live sustainably. Oh, we separate the rubbish or plastics and then in shopping centre we don't uh, take the plastic bags. That's the main thing we're trying to not to take. Compost, instead of throwing all of our food waste in the bin, we have a worm farm and give all our scraps to the dog 
Uh, you know, the sort of things you always talk about, like not buying all sorts of plastic stuff and using reusable bags, simple things like that. It's hard to think about national sustainability and outside of your home. So you just go for the little things. Well, for instance, I've just bought a gardening <laughs> thing here. Um, I garden. Uh, I ride a bike. I recycle. I'm bad with flights. Um, I fly a lot so I try to kind of offset that in various ways but I think you know sure it's up to me but I don't think that I'm act- I genuinely don't think that I'm going to make that much of a difference in comparison to what a corporation could. The people that we spoke to on the street seem really focused on plastics and recycling that was kind of the thing that they were doing at home. I think it's the thing that strikes out to people as well because it's perhaps one of the easiest things that you can do at home you know it, everybody It's in has, your control. Yeah everyone has rubbish and you can do the right thing with it put it in the right bin. But the woman at the end also mentioned corporations, that there's only so much that we can do as individuals, but it's up to big companies to also pull their weight. I find that really interesting because I've never thought about how sustainability and business can work together. Here's Mel Edwards. One of the things that we forget is that business touches every aspect of our lives. When you wake up in the morning and you're lying in bed, you've been touched by a business. <laughs> when the alarm clock or the phone wakes you up, that's a business that's behind the thing that's waking you up. When you go to the kitchen and you prepare yourself a meal, that you're interacting with business. When you catch a bus or a train or drive to work or walk, you're still interacting with businesses in the infrastructure and the services that have been provided you to be able to live that life. So I think it's really important for us to not separate ourselves from business as people, that businesses are actually made up of people and that we as consumers in society are supporters of business. So it's really important for us to make conscious decisions and judgments about the way that we decide to spend our money. I don't know about you, but when it comes to this sort of thing, I always feel a little bit powerless. You know, I want to do the right thing by the planet, but like... I also want to go overseas and not feel guilty about flying. I'm with you. There's only so much recycling that I can do or going through my rubbish however many times. But I do sometimes wonder if I'm doing that and other people aren't doing the same. Is that any help? Is that helping at all? All right. So let's look at it like this. We all know there's a problem. We as humans are taking more than we're giving back. We're selfish lovers. And what do you do when you have a problem? You fix it. But we can't exactly fix a problem by getting rid of 7 billion people off the planet, can we? So here's our next expert. Hi, my name's Peter Ralph. I'm the Executive Director of the Plant Functional Biology Climate Change Cluster, but C3 for short. Sustainability has evolved over time, but I think the simplest explanation is use without abuse. I think a lot of people see sustainability as to the exclusion of human society. And we will have pristine, beautiful habitats where there's no human society. But that's it's not something that we need to actively pursue. So I think the science and the engineering associated with allowing human habitation to exist in conjunction with natural habitats that their biodiversity isn't grossly diminished... I think is a great challenge. I really like that. I really like that point that we as humans can coexist with the planet because all the time you hear about the bad things that we're doing to the planet, but never as often do we hear about the good things. Yeah, and I'm all for going back to our roots, you know, dust off the mothballs off our loincloths. (laughs) Yeah, whatever tickles your fancy. (laughs) Well, to know what to do moving forward, I guess, we should probably look back. (gasps) 
I'll go back to the time when dinosaurs weren't just confined to zoos. Okay, don't panic. Remember the advice your father gave you on your wedding day. If you ever travel back in time, don't step on anything, because even the tiniest change can alter the future in ways you can't imagine. Fine. As long as I stand perfectly still and don't touch anything, I won't destroy the future. Stupid bug! You go squish now! <gasps> but that was just one little insignificant mosquito. That can't change the future, right? Right? What didn't The Simpsons predict, really? Well, to put it on a timeline, here's Kate Harris, CEO of Good Environmental Choice Australia. Really, uh, we've come from that place of valuing nature. And if you think of the Indigenous perspective as Earth being mother and provider, we get it. You know, without that, there is no life, in essence. I was talking to a scientist about this the other day, actually, for another story. He was saying that what we know now about the environment and best practices for sustainability, Aboriginal people were doing way back when. He said that instead of us asking how close did Aboriginal people get to science, we should be asking how can science get us back to what Aboriginal people were doing. So what sort of things are we talking about here? Well, they ate what was available based on seasons. You know, there were no avocados from Mexico. They hunted sustainably so they wouldn't kill kangaroos with joeys. And remember the dreaming story about Tiddalik? Oh, yeah. I remember Tiddalik, the little frog that drinks all the water from all the rivers and lakes, uh, leaving no water for all the other animals. <laughs> well, he wasn't so little after all that. He was a, this big, fat frog filled with water. Um, and then the animals devised this plan to make Tiddalik laugh because they think that's how all the water will get out of him. They all try, and it's the eel. The eel does this cool little dance that makes Tiddalik laugh, and all the water is expelled from his body, returning to the waterway. It's such a great story to tell people to share all the resources there are, especially water, which is scarce here, especially in the driest continent on the planet. Yeah, so Aboriginal people managed to live here for 60,000 years. So how did we go from thriving on the driest continent on Earth to desalination plants? And I think then, you know, we went into sort of world war, industrial revolutions, um, the whole consumerism changed. So this is where things get dark for me. As soon as I hear that word industrial, I'm thinking steam engines, trains, coal and smoggy skies. And thousands of people in factories in cramped conditions, children on looms. Yeah, population just rapidly, exponentially increasing. I kind of go for like the post-war side of that thing. I think of, you know, the white picket fence with the house with the traditional family and the 2.5 kids getting their first car and the advent of supermarkets, like all that stuff. Then I think we started to realise climate science started to come in and so there was the technical aspect to show we can't keep doing what we're doing. We've suddenly identified a problem and that became more and more in the 70s. Then you had um, the Brundtland Report, which was 1987, and a sustainability definition of really having a United Nations global movement kind of go, okay, we acknowledge there's a problem now. We need to give this a name and a definition and have some way of moving forward. Sounds like we're in the present now. And we're still filling in the dots 35 years on. And we've really struggled with it of what to do, even though we understand what the problem is um, and why it's happening of 
looking at how in terms of behaviour change we can really convince people to do something about it. So there was a lot of hope and aspiration that uh, the climate change talks in Copenhagen were going to do it. That was going to be everyone truly coming together on a global platform and acknowledging there was a problem and working together to solve it. And it didn't happen. And even before Copenhagen, there was Kyoto. I remember when John Howard wouldn't sign the Kyoto Protocol, and that was one of the big things that Kevin Rudd was going to do. It was going to be his first job as Prime Minister. So I remember telling my parents to vote for Kevin Rudd just so my future wouldn't be ruined. I had no idea about any of that as that was happening. But now I'm still hearing about stuff from the climate summit that happened at the end of last year. You can't go a day without hearing something about climate change. And more than ever now is when we we're coming up with solutions. So here we are, many years later now, we've just had COP21 in Paris. Things are very different. It feels a lot more optimistic. Australia has had a fair bit of international pressure to step up and, um, you know, what are we actually going to do about our coal and refugees and our concern about other... And these are all uh, sustainability issues. It's not just environment. There's social and cultural and economic consequences for all of these things. I'm Ellen Leibeter. I'm Jake Morecambe. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. So at the start of the show, we asked what sustainability means to you, and a lot of people immediately think about the environment. To be fair, if you'd asked me that question on the street, I probably would have said the same thing. It's a hard concept to get your head around. But as we're learning, sustainability isn't just about the environment. It's about much more than that. I'm Professor Stuart White. I'm the Director of the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. I tend to think of it as being about systems. So it's uh, looking beyond environment to social and economic issues, uh, looking beyond the next four years to the next seven generations, uh, looking beyond your immediate backyard to the planet and the globe itself. So it's about extending the boundaries of concern. It's not an easy road ahead, obviously, trying to reevaluate the way that we do things. The way we do things, trying to reevaluate the way we do everything, sounds pretty scary to me. Here's Kate Harris from earlier. And the reality is, we won't be able to, our lifestyles have to change. Now, this is specifically what scares me. I like my car, I like my hot shower, I like my air conditioning, I like living in a big house with a pool. A pool is so unsustainable! But I love it. I don't want to change anything. Well, you're not alone in thinking that. Everybody has the things that they don't want to detach themselves from. But one person we met had a pretty solid answer as to why they didn't do more to live sustainably. Greed, laziness, complacency, full stop. In a nutshell, just what I said. And I agree with that because I'm lazy, I'm greedy. And a lot of the time, I'm sure I actually overestimate what it is that I do to live sustainably. But there is another huge factor at play here. Probably money. If I if I <laughs> like the time, yeah, with work now. But yeah, pretty much just the money. Yeah, cost is a huge problem. So we definitely need to do something about that. Um, look, I would love to, uh, to have the opportunity to put um, solar panels on the house and reduce our energy costs uh, and smart metering and all of those kinds of things. There are upfront 
capital costs associated with that, which unfortunately I'm not in a position to, to finance at the moment. So I do think that we need to provide greater support to the renewable energy industry and create opportunities for people to make those fundamental changes at home and, uh, and build a sustainable future. I can't imagine that I'd ever be able to afford something like a hybrid car, solar panels, Maybe not if I want to continue being a journalist. <laughs> Maybe a hybrid car is a bit out of your price range, but solar panels are actually decreasing in price and more and more people are getting on board. So there's hope for us after all if we do stay in media and want to live sustainably. Well, I do think a lot of people are now attracted to living in more sustainable houses and operating them more sustainably. That's Jeff Angel. He's the executive director of the Total Environment Centre. And I think that his point backs up where we are at the moment. It's in. It's much more popular to do the right thing now. It's not like when you're in school and you're the first to get to class and then when you do, everyone calls you the goody two-shoes. <laughs> People are generally happier now to do the right thing by the environment. And even going back to what we were saying earlier, when we were asking you what you did sustainably, everyone had an answer. No one turned around and went like, nah, don't do that stuff. <laughs> People are trying. But that's the point as well where we need outside help. It's also up to businesses and governments to meet us halfway. I guess one example would be housing. Uh, one of the issues is that you may build a sustainable house, you know, with water-efficient energy and water-efficient features, but a lot depends on how the people inside the building, inhabiting the building, actually use those features and they don't dismantle them. It's still not really mainstream. We're still having trouble with the cheap and nasty developers who, you know, and the Housing Industry Association who say, well, all this sustainability stuff just increases the price of houses and no one's, no one's going to be keen about that. But I think a lot more people are understanding that it's not just the price of the house, it's the cost of running the house. And if you're using less water and energy, you're saving a lot of money over the life of the house. And we have had success with these collaborations in the past. I'm, I'm not talking about a new park in a tiny suburb. I'm talking about one of the biggest global events ever, the Olympic Games. Uh, well, environmental groups were very involved in trying to green up the Games, uh, particularly Total Environment Centre and Greenpeace. We initially found that the proponents of the Sydney Olympics were engaged in green spin, greenwash. They weren't telling the truth about our environmental problems and they certainly didn't have sufficiently effective or binding principles to get a green outcome. But we in Greenpeace certainly talked to the government and they set up a more genuine process. Uh, we established a group called Green Games Watch 2000. And uh, as a consequence, we did get a very good on-the-ground implementation of sustainability, which uh, went right through the whole gamut from the materials being used to build the facilities, you know, sustainably sourced timber, minimal use of PVC plastics, construction in such a way that it didn't need enormous energy inputs for air conditioning or lighting, uh, the actual waste practices so that all the waste was recycled, both the construction waste and the operational waste as people use the site. Even the merchandising, you know, we tried to influence the merchandising. That was a bit difficult because those merchandising people like flogging as much as possible, but we tried to get them to use the right materials. 
the community part of this is huge at the moment. People are looking to work together because two minds are better than one, as you can tell by this show. The two, <laughs> two of us are doing a much better job than one person. And it's so much easier now. You, you can just pick up your phone, you can do a really quick Google search, and there's so much out there on offer that you can just jump straight into. There's actually a movement called One Million Women, which is helping people to cut waste out of their lives. Here's the founder, Natalie Isaacs. The aim is that you make a commitment to um, cut at least a tonne of pollution out of your life uh, within a year. And so our website and everything that we do through our blogs, through our social media, through our campaigns, through our events, everything shows you how to do it. And we focus on the key areas of daily living, so home energy, food waste, um, how do you get from A to B with the least impact on the planet? Overconsumption, um, buying less. Uh, and we focus on all the things that we do in our daily life that creates our carbon footprint. And we show you in bite-sized actions how you get that down. And what's so great about that is, is look, here's one person who's recognised that she can only do so much herself. And now she's looking or encouraging everybody to get involved. Woo, go Natalie. A lot of time it takes something huge to affect your life in order for you to affect change. And that's kind of how it all started for Natalie. The, the big year for me was 2006. And it seemed like the world got the point on climate change. Al Gore came out with an inconvenient truth. When the inconvenient truth came out here in Australia, it was at a time when bushfires were just so ferocious. And that's much more the case now. But And it felt like you couldn't open the newspaper, couldn't listen to the radio, watch television without there being something powerful about climate change. But, you know, my um, husband used to be a journalist and an environmental journalist. And I was um, under the house the other week going through some old stuff and I found a lot of his old articles. And this one goes back, I think it was 27 years or... And the front cover said, all I want for Christmas is a Great Barrier Reef. And it was this incredible story about that we were losing the Great Barrier Reef to climate change. And here we are now. It's only gotten worse. That is headline quality. I went to the Great Barrier Reef last year and I was actually there about 10 years ago as well. And the difference is so so noticeable the corals are not as colorful the fish are not as there's not as many fish it was actually really sad and and I guess that kind of for me was the moment where I started thinking really seriously about sustainability do you have a moment like that Jake well can I be honest yeah we're all friends here working on this program I know it's the first episode but I've I've always contemplated how my actions or what I do in my everyday affects the environment somehow but I've never really thought or connected it to how I could make a difference as an individual. And there's not really been any point. I've never been to the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, No point in time where I'm like, wow, I have to get on board until now. And that's why I'm excited to be a part of this and, you know, actually be part of the change. Because we're what, Jake? What? We're all in this together. 
You know, this is not the first time in my life that High School Musical has been relevant to who I am as a changing person. This is this is inspiration. I, I cannot thank Zac Efron and the Disney franchise enough. <laughs> um, but it is true, though. We all have to be on the same boat, and that's across the entire planet. Let's bring back Kate Harris and see what she thinks about where we stand globally. I'm actually positive about the global situation, and I think, you know, certainly since COP21 and to be fair in the Australian scene one would say there's a lot more faith in what we're doing since uh, shifts in Prime Minister and we've got elections coming up so there are that's another mechanism and drive that we can use so with those things there is a positive sense but globally I see huge leadership at senior level United Nations level who get it no one else outside of Australia is asking whether climate science is real or not. That seems to be an Australian quirk. So no one else is still arguing about that or saying is it real or denying it. They've got it, they've accepted it, and they're going, okay, we need to work together to make to solve some problems around this. And no, it's not easy. But where we can still sit in that debate of whether it's real or not. It, you know, it's a construct that's costing a lot of time and I guess, and, and a lot of lost opportunity because I think if we there is a new economy, there's new ways of being and doing ahead of us. The future can actually be really amazing. It doesn't have to be this doom and gloom. It is about being creative and innovative and, and looking at things in different perspectives and valuing different things and maybe going back more to how things were and learning from elders. So it doesn't have to be a horrible place. It could be really amazing, but we also need to be part of that momentum. I think that's what's the exciting thing when we talk about sustainability because we're looking to the future, but we have so much to learn from what we have already accomplished and really have the opportunity to do something about it now. It's no longer dip our toes in the water. Now we have to like belly flop into what we can do to make a change. And that's exactly what you're going to hear here on Think Sustainability. Hours and hours of Jake doing belly flops into <laughs> bodies of water. <laughs> Splashy water effects. You've got it all. In, but in all seriousness, uh, we've got so many things that we're looking forward to sharing with you. Jake, what are you looking forward to this season? There's a lot of things. One thing that I'm not going to give too much away, it's an episode uh, dedicated to human waste. Oh, there's so many poop opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Another thing I'm really excited to talk about though is tea and coffee. And just to give a bit of background, I am a maniac for both. I buy my coffee from the coffee place down the road every day at work. I have an espresso machine. I have my Tetley every single night. But you know what I found out? Yeah, Earth Jake, all those ways I'm having my warm beverages are really bad for the planet. <laughs> The capsules are the worst and there's so many of I them. I know, in so many different colours. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to figuring out the other ways to enjoy my coffee and tea. And for now, each time I'm using my Nespresso machine, I'm stacking away the <laughs> capsules in the pantry so that when I figure out what to do with them, I've got them ready to go. You're going to be a hoarder. Oh, yeah. A capsule hoarder. Even more so. Uh, I'm really excited about next week's episode in particular because we're going to be talking about the latest trend in extreme sports. It's not skydiving it's not base jumping it's extreme coral diving we've actually got a preview for you right now now what's really interesting is that most of our research in the past has focused on corals on the barrier reefs the pristine blue waters where we see all of the colorful and branching corals but what we're interested in is really the horrible murky waters that are surrounded in the, in the back reef and, and the reason we're interested in these waters 
is based on some previous research in the Indo-Pacific where we've explored reefs and found that in these really murky back reef waters, we can actually find coral communities are able to thrive um, and persist in waters that conventionally we've believed corals just simply couldn't survive. Most of these backwaters and uh, fringing reefs are dominated by mangrove waters, and mangroves are typically brown, muddy, murky, not a lot of light penetration. And actually, if you try and look uh, at what's on the bottom from the surface of those waters, you don't really see an awful lot. And that's part of the reason these systems have been overlooked. But if you're brave enough to um, put your wetsuit and your shark shield on and go and have a little look in these systems, actually there's amazing biodiversity can open up in front of your eyes. That's David Suggett. He's the team leader of the coral group at UTS, or as I like to call him, the Extreme Coral Swashbuckler. He'll change his title to that now, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So tune in again next week where you'll be able to hear all about how corals and mangroves may yet help our understanding of how corals can adapt to extreme environments. Good news for me because you know how much I love my coral reefs. You do. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website at 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. And you can also subscribe to us on iTunes. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Ellen Lee I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week. Blues Fest Touring in 2SER presents St Paul and the Broken Bones at the Metro on Monday, March 21st. Otis Redding, Van Morrison, the comparisons all there for St Paul's voice. St Paul and the Broken Bones, blue-eyed retro soul at the Metro on Monday, March 21st. Tickets through Ticketek. Also appearing at Blues Fest, proud 2SER sponsor.